Good morning, church. <clears throat> you guys doing all right? Good, good, good. I am so excited to be here with all of you on this particular day. Uh, you know, this uh, space that we are in, this is a part of our believing as a people that when God tells us to do something, that when we do it, he is at work in unique ways in us and through us because we are living in a trust and obedience to his word. And he bothered in his word to put the fact that we should not neglect gathering together in regularity as some are in the habit of doing. That's words right out of scripture. I didn't say that to cause it. He just said that. And so when we gather like we are doing now to express the truths of God through worship for our own souls, for each other and for the worship of God, to receive from one another those expressions to explore together the truths of God, the way of God, the life of God, his story, the gospel through his word. We are participating in a supernatural event. Do not for one second think that just because this gathering includes lots of natural things like singing or sitting or listening or thinking or processing that this is a natural thing that's happening. It has natural components, but it includes the supernatural presence and work of God that now, because we are gathered, is a supernatural space, a sacred space. We should sit for a minute and go, how do I get to be in a sacred space? How do I get to be involved in a supernatural thing that I don't even have to do anything supernatural for? Welcome. And frankly, I'm pretty excited to be here with you so that we can go and do what is impossible to explore things above our pay grade and outside of our imagination because he has given us his spirit to empower us to understand what we cannot understand and see what we cannot see, hear what we cannot hear and be transformed in ways that we cannot transform ourselves. I mean, does it get any better than that? So uh, as we entered the summer, uh, as a teaching team, here at Mosaic Church, we were prayerfully considering uh, what it is that God would lead us into as we enter the summer uh, in terms of the journey we've been on. So as many of you know, we have been traveling through the chronological, historical unfolding of the story of God through his word. So we've been traveling through the Bible book for book in their chronological, historical order, not in the order by which they are ordered here. And so we were looking at in the chronology what the next book would be, a letter written, uh, and it is First Timothy. So we knew we were entering into First Timothy as we came out of Philippians. So we went to God and began to pray and, and, and wait and listen to see uh, the entry of Philippians, uh, I mean, First uh, Timothy, where he wanted us to do that. And God began to stir in our teaching team and then uh, beyond that into uh, our elders, this sense that said this summer, uh, take pause. I want you to enter a bigger question 
than just entering into 1 Timothy and all that it will bring. The question I want you to enter into is, how do we engage in a life where we experience the revival of soul in a regularity of dailiness in our life when we live in a culture and a space where speed and noise is of such magnitude and circumstances, relationships and resources so unpredictable that they are regularly creating disruption of soul. And so we read that as followers of Jesus, there is a space we progressively move toward where we are breathing in the breath of God in regularity. And that is giving our souls a revival. It is reviving us. How do we do that? What does that look like? How does that work? Can it work? These are the questions that began to stir in us. And so God began to speak through the plurality of his community, the collective of the teaching team and others, uh, this, this concept that perhaps for the summer, we as a staff and a teaching team would enter a space where instead of prayerfully considering the answer to that and the progression of that and setting up a series with all the sermons marked out and it's this step and then this step and then it progresses and builds, maybe what we ought to do is come every week to God and say, what's next? Because we, 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 we covered what you told us last week to cover. That was, that was the next piece of clarity that we needed to understand progressively what it means to have revival of soul. What do we do next? So we've been doing that. Every Monday, the staff gathers for prayer for an hour. And then we come out of that prayer and we just linger for 30 minutes and let the processing and the spirit of God processing our intellect and minds and thoughts and emotions to set some trajectory. And then we gather as a teaching team and we, and we talk and we just see what begins to emerge. And then we begin study and diving in and seeing, and God has been so faithful to us through which then we could bring some of what he's doing for us to you and he could be faithful to all of us. And so he took us on a journey. Uh, We started recognizing that if we don't know how much we need God, we cannot enter the space of needing to breathe in his breath because we will gravitate to finding our revival in other places if we are not acutely aware that we are desperate only and always for God. We traveled from there uh, into the journey of the joy of our salvation and realizing that out of that desperation, uh, a a, a remembering, a clarity, a, a constant fixation on the fact that he saved us, saving us, will save us, we are safe with him, should be a giant deal and you should be overwhelmed by it. We should be overwhelmed by it. The joy of our salvation is part of how our souls are revived we walked out of there into the invitation that a king who has saved us would invite us to feast at his table with no, no expectation. Just come. I saved you to come to me and sit with me and be with me and feast with me. Like when you come to a person who is a great mentor or someone you respect greatly, who has great wisdom and you sit with them and at the table you sit and you listen, you can't believe you're there. And then they speak and they share and you're chatting and you walk away and you're like, what have I just learned? And and it wasn't for the learning, it was for the feasting, but you were there with one who will pour himself, herself into you. And Jesus says, I am that king, come feast with me. 
And then we started moving from that feasting space to say, okay, God, uh, what does that begin to look like as we travel through life? And a long obedience in the same direction emerged this concept of this is not for tourists. This is for pilgrims. We have been duped as Westerners in believing that God functions the same way the rest of the planet does like a YouTube video. And you can find quick fixes, quick diets, quick this, quick that, quick transformations, because who has time for long things that take forever to change? No, no. And God says, I have time and you have time. And my journey is a pilgrimage, not for tourists. And so we are wrestling with our tourisms. And we are beginning to beg God to show us what it means to pilgrim with him. And then out of that beautiful reality of pilgrimage, uh, we were reminded by God that when we come with our obedience, it is not to do something for him, prove something to him. It is to come to him and to go with him. The point of our long journey of obedience is not what we're proving to God. It is us coming to him to be with him. Because what does he say? I don't want you to go do something for me. I just want you to come to me and go with me. Because the point isn't what you do. I could do it myself. The point is that we're together. And he doesn't need you or me. The reason he wants us together is because we need him. And we need each other because he made us that way. So I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And then out of that, he led us into the Shema. As you go on this journey of pilgrimage with me, uh, there will be things you will see, know, and learn from me. And Shema, the Hebrew word for to listen is also the word for to obey because they cannot be separated. A journey with Jesus is not one where we learn and then we go obey. We are learn, obey, hear, hear. It is just what you do because that's what a disciple does. A disciple sits with their rabbi and whatever the rabbi says, does, or his rhythms, you do it. Not because you have to, but because you're a disciple and you have decided that this rabbi, you want to be exactly like this rabbi. That doesn't feel like a burden for the rabbi. That feels like an adventure with the rabbi. And we start discovering this is the intent of God. This is the story of scripture. And so this week as we prayed, and did all of that, we said, God, where next? God began to lead us into the next unfolding wonder of great and unsearchable things we do not know. And God gravitated uh, us and me toward a space where Jesus first began in his earthliness, the beauty of bringing the kingdom of God through teaching to us. Because we're talking about a long obedience. We're talking about a being with and going with. We're talking about a Shema, a hear and do. So the question then becomes, what does that look like? What am I hearing? What am I doing? Why am I doing? How does this work? And, and the Spirit of God said, Let, let's go take a look at where it all began. And as Jesus was on this planet and his ministry began, there came this event in the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 6 and moving into chapter 7, and really starting in chapter 5 
five, honestly. It's, it starts with the Beatitudes, moves its way through all of chapter five, all of chapter six, all of chapter seven, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount because it was a single sitting where Jesus sat and he taught and what he was teaching there was the kingdom from which he came and the king that he is in that kingdom. And he was trying to say to us humans, like little three-year-olds, you live in your world with your understanding. Here is my world. And when you are an adult trying to teach a three-year-old adult things, you got to teach them in a way that those three-year-olds can fathom. We use birds and bees for concepts that three-year-olds can't understand. And in the same way, this was Jesus's birds and bees to us. You can't possibly ever fathom the wonder and beauty and depth of my kingdom. But in some ways, it feels like this, unlike your kingdom. And as the Beatitudes and then the beauty of the Sermon of the Mount unfolds, Jesus begins to stir in the human race through his followers a new way, a new truth, a new kingdom that will come, that is coming, that has come with Jesus, that those who choose to follow him will begin to become a part of even now in this kingdom. That's where it began. And at the end of that sermon, Jesus closes the sermon out with a story. In Matthew chapter seven, this is what he says. Listen to this. Matthew 7, literally, the Sermon on the Mount is coming to its end. And as conclusion to that, he says this, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So he says, these words I've just brought to you, which I will keep bringing to you throughout the entirety of my time on this planet. This was a beginning of, not an end of. He's not referring in this little story just to the Sermon on the Mount. He's referring to what he has begun. As I bring my kingdom, my truth, my way, and show you my life. Those who look at that and say, I want to hear that and do that. I want to shema that. You will be like a wise person building their house on solid rock. And then he says this, and the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat on the house, but it does not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not believe them, do them, does not shema, then will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And the next sentence is, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teachings for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So that's where the sermon ends and people are aware what was just taught to us is beyond us. 
It is beyond anything our rabbis have taught before. It is new. It is a new truth, a new way, a new life. And yet it is old. It is all of it. It is full as though Jesus were fulfilling all in this first iteration to the three-year-olds of what his kingdom is like. But what does he say? He says, listen, to those of you that will look at what I will now teach and show, if you hear and believe and obey the Shema, then your life will stabilize in ways you can't fathom. It will sustain, it will hold, it will be steadfast. It will feel safe and stable because if you follow me, there will be no more storms, no more wind, no more rain. You will live in sunshine and blue skies. Did you, did you hear that in that sentence? Who gets the rain, the wise or the unwise? Both. Who gets the storms? Both. Who gets the beating on the house? Both. Guys, the philosophy that if you follow God well, you get a full bank account, great friendships, a happy life, and no circumstances that will hurt you, and you'll never be sick, is not true. Because we live on a planet that is still infected by sin and death. So we should assume that though there will be many beautiful things, there will be many brutal things. And you and I don't know which is coming next. It is neither the hatchet's about to fall, nor is it the hatchet will never fall. It is that they are hatchets and they fall when they choose. And so comes the storm. And when it comes, what Jesus is saying to us is that if you are a person that, that hears me and my truth, my way, my life, and you believe and you practice as you follow me and are with me, your life will transcend the circumstances, relational dynamics and resource challenges, not insofar as it will be absent of them, but when they batter against your life, they will feel just as scary, just as overwhelming, just as big. You will grieve just as much. You will feel just as big as the foolish person. But the one difference will be that when the storm dissipates, you will look at your life and say, here, it still stands because he is my rock. And so you will begin to realize as your life progresses, the following of Jesus creates security and safety and stability because he makes a promise. You follow me, your house stands. Pick a category, relational category, marriage, friendship, to resource category, circumstance category. Health, lots coming, but it will look different in how it ends each time. But if you do not follow me, when the crash comes, it never comes soft. It's never just a little house that goes sideways and you get out and repair. The house will fall and when it falls, it'll have a great fall. Then from that point in Matthew chapter seven, for chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10 and chapter 11, Jesus walks around with his disciples and he does authoritative things, crazy supernatural things. He heals sick people. He raises dead people. He calms storms. He does these things that, 
start pointing toward the idea that if you thought I taught with authority and you were wondering what authority do you have to teach as such, let me show you. If you ever question the power and might of my authority, watch, there is nothing on this planet that I do not have authority over. Whether it is demons or sickness or death, whether it is storms or, uh, or, or wind or rain, I hold authority. So when I teach like this, I got what it takes to teach like that. But while he's doing that, he also continues to teach about what it's going to be like if we follow this Jesus, his truth, his way, his life, in a world that opposes his truth, his way, and his life. All of us do. We all have our own way, our own truth, and our own life. And they're all different. And they all are our own. And they all are different than his. And he says, if you're going to follow me, it's not just going to be a cakewalk because you're on a planet that doesn't match my kingdom. So you will not fit in anymore in the way you once did. And it will get hard. And he says lots of hard things in Matthew 8, 9, 10, and 11. The kinds of hard things that if you and I were with him during that time, we might get to Matthew chapter 11 and say, wow, it sounded great in Matthew 7 about the house thing. But wow, if you want disciples, this is not the way to do it. You just told us it's going to be really, really a little crazy. I mean, the whole house thing, the stabilization, the storms, I love that. But now you're like, but it's going to be a crazy ride and not always easy. Won't even always feel right because your truth, when it shows up against my truth, will often, if not always say, I don't know. That truth seems super odd, super doesn't make sense. And Jesus is like, it's going to get hard on multiple levels. And just when he's done with all this, like, it's going to be hard to follow me. Not going to come easy. It's not going to be easy. It's going to cost you greatly. He bookends that with another statement that makes no sense until it makes sense. Watch. There we go through all of Matthew 8, 9, 10, and 11. And at the end of Matthew 11, just when we're like, whoa, that's costly. He says, come to me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hmm. Take my yoke upon you. So a rabbi's yoke was his truth, his way, the way is his rhythms, and his life. So when you had a rabbi and they talked about my, you'd go to a rabbi and say, what's your yoke? He would then articulate what is his truth, what he teaches, what he knows and believes. He would articulate his rhythms of life. This is my way. This is how I do the way of life. And then you would follow him for a few days, weeks or months and watch his life and say, okay, that's your life. This is the rhythms by which you live that life. And these are the truths that govern the rhythms in life you live. Do I want to follow those? So Jesus says, take on my yoke, my yoke, and something will happen. Something that is a promise that you don't go get. It happens. It's a consequence of being my disciple. Here it is. 
I will give you rest. Here's why. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me rabbinical language. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. He's talking about a rest that isn't rest. It's rest. Deep rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how fascinating that as we are exploring together the idea, God, of what it looks like that I would live life in the dailiness, in the storms, in the circumstances, in the relational dynamics of complexity and insanity, in the resource challenges that come and go, too much, too little, too much, too little. Love you, hate you, love you, hate you. And oh, oh, yeah, oh, circumstances. As we live in that, and then we have our internal my truth, my truth, my way, my way, screaming and shouting. Jesus comes and he says, take on mine, take on mine. And your house will stand when the storms come. You will be safe and stable, even though the world is not either of those things. And you are not either of those things. And the other humans are not either of those things. And... You will find rest for your soul, which makes no sense because you are a disciple doing and following, shamaing. But that kind of shema will settle you because my journey, my calling, my you follow me is not about you doing for me a bunch of things like much rabbinical journey is. It is actually a journey that will begin to feel more like an adventure than a burden. It's not that Jesus is saying that the things you will do in following me, they're easy and light because you just spent several chapters going, they're hard and heavy. He's just saying, but what you will find, here's what's magical, what's supernatural, what's unthinkable, and you will only know it if you follow me and see it. I can tell you, but you have to, you have to come is that as you do this thing that at first looks heavy and burdensome, you will find in the doing of it that it will become something of a grand adventure because as you do it, what will you find? Greater stableness of soul, greater rest of soul, the peace and the safety will be yours. And the more you experience that in Christ and the world fades, not that the storms dissipate, but when they batter, they don't crush. And you will start going, I want more of this. And the work I'm doing is now not a work. It is an adventure, a pilgrimage, a following, a Shema toward what is life. And you will find Jesus to be more than you thought ever possible for your little soul and mine. And so he says, come do that work. What work? The work of learning my truth. The work of learning my way and practicing it. The work of living my life. Those are work. You have to do things to learn. Do things to practice. Do things to put into doing, but come and do those, not because you have to, because I'm your boss and you're my kid and this is obedience, because that pilgrimage 
that journey of discipleship brings you to safety, brings you to stability, and brings you to rest because it brings you to me. That's right. Our work is a work to be with Jesus and go with Jesus. That's why our work will feel light when it is not a work to prove to Jesus anything. It is not an obedience, yet it is an obedience. It is an obedience that is an invitation. We live in a culture that is obsessed with our uniqueness, each of us. Yay! And not to diminish the beauty of uniqueness. God made us all different because he's displaying his creativity. So you are unique to me and I to you. We have unique personalities, unique physicalities, unique concepts and ideas, unique opinions. And I love that. But when a culture takes that beauty of uniqueness and starts giving us rights to be truth creators, we are in deep trouble. And we live in a culture obsessed with, you have your truth, I have mine. Isn't that beautiful? You each have a truth and it's yours. And I have a truth and it's mine. I'm sick of my truth. I'm sick of my truth. My truth gets me down a crazy ride every time. Starts well. And before I blink, I'm like, whoa, everyone hates me. No, better yet, I hate everyone. And I'm sick of your truth. I am. I'm sick of every one of your truths. I'm sick of mine and I'm sick of yours. And we ought to get sick of the truths we each hold and the truths our culture, whichever one it might be, brings us. And Jesus comes into each of our unique truths and our unique cultural setting. And he says, there is only one truth, truth that is the truth. And only that truth will give you stability and only that truth will give you rest. And if you pursue any other truth, build your life on any other thing, religious activity, religious concepts, cultural nuances, personal beliefs, feelings, thoughts, rights, build, build away, my friend. But when the storms come, your truths cannot hold your house because your truths are sand. And so we come and we are invited by God, to Shema, hear and obey, not because obedience is how we prove faithfulness, but because obedience, the long obedience in the same direction is the pilgrim's way, the disciple's way, and it leads us to the one who is rock, the one who is rest. And what your life needs and what my life needs more than anything else, because we are created to need this more than anything else, us little humans with souls, is stability and safety and rest. And Jesus comes and says, I am rock and I am rest. So where should you come? To me. How do you get here? Learn my truth. Learn my way and put it into practice. Start practicing it. Not get it right every day. Just start practicing it. Trust it. Believe my truth. Practice my way. Watch my life. And whatever I did, that's important. Do that. And whatever I didn't do much of, stop doing that a lot. You're going to go home and get really bent out of shape when you start looking at all the things we all do as Westerners and how much of all that we do, Jesus put little stock in. And how much of what we don't do, Jesus put a ton of stock in. 
We are invited to abandon our truths and our ways and our lives and work at learning his truth, his way, and his life and putting it into practice. And here is the insanity of that. Jesus, when he was with his disciples uh, toward the end of his time on this planet, at the last meal that he was having with them before his death and resurrection. He would have other meals with them post-resurrection, so this wasn't the last supper he ever had with them. We call it the last supper because it was the last one before he died and rose from the dead. And when he was having that meal with them, it did function like a last supper in the sense that Jesus was taking three years of teaching and just kind of focusing on a couple of key things and saying, if I'm going to summarize a few things that matter the most, here they are. So it's wise for us, like listening to his kingdom at the start of his journey in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's wise for us to hear about his summary at the end of his journey in the beautiful unfolding in the book of John of that meal. He says lots of things there and he teaches lots of things. And at one point he says in John chapter 14, actually in 13, right before he says, I am going to be going to a place like tomorrow um, that you can't come with me to. And Peter, you know, Peter, I can almost see him at the meal like, tell me where, tell me when. Like Peter didn't like mention to Jesus, like I'd like to come with you. Read it. Peter's like, where you go, I go. End of story. Non-negotiable. Done. Because Peter often spoke to Jesus authoritatively. And on a few occasions, Jesus said things like, Satan, get behind me. Mm. That was Peter too. So Peter says, I'm coming with you. And Jesus says, like a parent to a three-year-old, that's so cute. I, lo I, lo I love that about you. You're so full. But you can't. Not on this one. But don't worry where I'm going. I'm going to do things. And then I'm going to come get you. There's beauty in that story for another time. And he says, you all know the way to where I'm going. So don't worry. You won't feel lost. And the one guy on the discipleship team that often had the courage to say, they're all nodding their heads like they know what you just said, but nobody knows. You ever, ever been at a conference where someone uses a big word and everyone's like, mm, but no one in the room knows what it means. And then one person has the courage to say, I'm sorry, I have no idea what that word means. And everyone like looks at you like, you're oh, stupid. But they're all like, oh good, someone asked because we had no idea. That was Thomas all the time. How dare we call him Doubting Thomas? He was courageous, Thomas. And he raises his hand and he says, I'm sorry, I'm confused. We know the way you're going, but you just said we can't come with you. And we have no idea where you're going and we have no idea the way. And Jesus said, you know me. And I am the truth. I am the way. And I am the life. And when you follow me, you know the way. Where it will take you is to the rock and to the soul rest, both here and into eternity. And if you don't know me, it will take you to a great crash and an exhaustion. And as you enter eternity without me, those will look like a joke because what's waiting is worse. So he says, follow me. Folks, we have a rabbi who has a truth that is the truth, who has a way, a rhythm of life that is the rhythm, and who lived a life and lives a life that is the life. And if we are tourists in our journey, we will pop in and out of his truth right here, memorize five verses in a lifetime and use them like pixie dust when we need them. 
tourists. We will abandon the long journey of knowing and learning his truth because we are too busy with running ourselves and kids to sports games. Did I say that out loud? Shoot. And activities and things and careers and stuff because how dare we have ordinary lives? How dare we? Jesus, I'm stopping there. Um, We choose to be pilgrims and disciples and learn the truths of Jesus in longevity and depth together. And then we choose in that learning to learn the ways, the rhythms of Jesus, and we buy into them and practice them instead of buying into what our culture says we should be doing. Productivity is this. Future security is productivity. So don't ever abandon a productivity for quietness. You're crazy. And Jesus goes, huh, that sounds like sand to me. Good luck on that. But come to me and do it my way. Practice my rhythms and you will see life. And then we watch the life of Jesus. We learn it together. And what he does, guess what? We start doing that. And what he never seems to do much of, guess what? We start doing less of that if we're doing it. And here's what we are trusting. We can't know. We're trusting. We call it faith. That the promise he made, that if you build your life on my yoke and on me, you will do nothing to get these things. They will just arrive because of where you're building your house. Safety, security, stability, in the storms and soul rest in the storms. What would a life be in the unpredictability of the circumstances of life if I knew more and more progressively as I learned my rabbi's ways and truth and believed them and lived them to listen for the rains and the winds and go, they're back. They used to, they used to about undo me, but my house kept standing and my soul kept finding peace afterwards. Someday it comes where you find peace, not afterwards, but in. And someday you find that peace doesn't even diminish at all. This is the way that waits. The adventure sits before us. I want that. I want to go after that. You're welcome to join me. You're welcome not to. But I want to head there. I hope we do it together. The long obedience in the same direction to come to him and go with him, shamaing along the way because he is our rock and he is our rest. And he's promised we'd find both if we do the work of intimacy with him through long obedience as pilgrims and disciples, not as tourists. Let's pray. God, thank you for your great love for us and that you would even bother to come to these crazy humans and invite us to be your disciples. Invite us to pilgrimage with you along the journey, to watch you, to learn your life, to learn your ways, to learn your truths, like sitting over a cup of coffee with someone wiser than us and walking away with new, great and unsearchable things we can't yet fathom, excited to see them unfold. May we become a people that are committed 
to the long journey of discipleship, the long journey of obedience, the long journey of pilgrimage, not because those things are what you require of us, because, but because in those things lie the secret to the coming to you and the going with you, the being with you, the witness with you, the witness with each other, and in being with you there and there alone waits safety, waits stability, waits rock. And in there with you waits rest, waits soul rest, waits revival. God, by your grace, and the power of your spirit in us. Show us the way. Give us the courage to choose that way and fulfill your promises to give us safety and rest. In Jesus' name, amen.